Oh, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. And we are going to continue through our series on Philippians and looking at Paul's letter to the Church of Philippi. Now, my wife would tell you uh, that I'm a better uh, written communicator than I am an oral communicator. And that is because I will, I will share my, my feelings, my emotions. I will get vulnerable with her. She's not saying that because I'm a great speller or my penmanship is incredible. But uh, what I love about writing is that I can think about things over and over and over. I can edit them. I can take things back that I didn't want to say. And I can also Google a great Hallmark card and put it in my own penmanship for her to read. Now, don't tell her that secret. But Jen loves to read uh, these letters over and over and over because I open up my heart. I share my love for her. I share my encouragement of who I think she is. And it's often life-giving for her. Now, if you read them, you would need some of the backdrop. You wouldn't uh, understand our inside jokes or our shared experiences that we had. But to Jen, they mean a lot. And, uh, and they're deep in meaning and in memories. Now, I'm not a great writer, but, um, but that's besides the point. And uh, what I love about Paul's letter that he has written to the, the church in Philippians is it's actually 2,000 years old. It's still relevant to us today. And we're still reading it with some, with some rich history that is there. Now, what we need to do is enter into the life of Paul a little. So remember, in these days, there's a lot going on. And over the, the history, we as humans, we have this great rich heritage of really messing things up and judging. But God, God calls us over the years and has called us and provided for us as humans. And then what do we do? We end up running away, turning our backs. God creates us in this beautiful way, breathing life into us, forming us with spoken words. And then we quickly rebel and forfeit the blessing. Now, God chooses Abraham and his family to restore the Eden blessing to mankind. But eventually, the descendants of Abraham would end up as slaves in Egypt. But God, faithful to his promise to Abraham, uh, he makes a new covenant with, with Israel. And at this time, he says that he will bless them and protect them if they follow their end of the covenant, a set of rules and rituals that we would now call the Old Testament law. So throughout the rest of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we see this continual pattern of the Israelites, you know, hearing from God and then breaking, breaking the, the rules. This pattern of, you know, instruction leading to rebellion. And it ends up to the end of the, the Torah, where then Moses says, um, the only way that you will ever really be able to follow God's law is if your hearts are transformed. So Moses' writing comes true. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see death and destruction that follows Israel because they're unable to follow God's law. But later in the story, we start to hear prophets who are talking about uh, the, the day that is about to come where following God's rules and his commands uh, are going to be more of a pleasure than a duty. And the prophet Isaiah speaks of this coming Messiah that will, will, will help us in our obedience. During much of this time, there were, there were prophets who were desperate to, to protect Israel from becoming like other nations, from following other gods, from returning to their ways, uh, from returning to idols. And people were saying stuff like, remember when we were slaves in Egypt? Let's not repeat that. Let's not go from bad to worse. 
So as we continue on in this timeline, and as we approach the time of Jesus, we start to see these zealous Jews, people who are zealous for the traditions of their fathers. Much of the Jewish faith was at risk sometimes from these idols creeping in. And these zealous people were going to do whatever it takes to purge evil out of Israel. So now Saul enters the stage as one of these zealous Jews. He describes himself as a pure-blood Hebrew from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, He obeyed all the Jewish laws, all 613 laws without fault. Paul was a high-ranking leader among these zealous Jews, and he was going to keep the faith safe. So much so that around 30 AD, Paul is persecuting the church, the followers of Jesus. He's persecuting them because they're a threat, and that's how he sees them. And this isn't the first time that people were seen as a threat to the faith. So Paul catches wind of these people in Damascus, this town. And what does he do? He sets out. He, he goes out on a journey and, and down this, this, I picture this like dirty dirt road that he's walking down. And what happens on this road? You know the story. It's the transformation of Saul to Paul. Uh, the moment where he actually meets the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus asks him, Paul, why are you fighting against me? And at that moment, Paul is transformed. Um, He actually meets Jesus. He meets this Messiah that he has read about and heard about and what they've been talking about. And now Jesus asks Paul to go from town to town, uh, continuing to teach and tell people of this good news of Jesus. So what does he do? He goes from town to town teaching, and he's teaching to Jews. He's teaching to Gentiles, people who, who didn't follow the Jewish traditions. So he's doing this for 30 years of traveling and teaching. So much so that he's actually being beaten and persecuted. He's put in jail. He goes from riches to poverty. Imagine, in these 30 years of Paul teaching, there is still tension in the church. People are still thinking Jesus is a threat. He's not the real Messiah. And and they're arguing over, is Jesus really Jesus? So we have heard much of this story from Uh, At the beginning of this series on on who Paul was, we've heard uh, Larry go into who the the people in Philippi were and what the Roman culture was like. And this is all a great backdrop as we continue to look into this this story. And and now we're learning some of of what the the history of the law had in the the Jewish customs and traditions. Because as you can picture now, there are these people who have been following these laws for many years. And now there's people coming into the faith who haven't been following these, these laws. And so, so what are they going to do? So Paul's trying to bring perspective and teach and, and say, now that the Messiah is here, this is what it means. So what does the church do? Well, the leaders in the church, they have a meeting. They have meeting upon meeting upon meeting to discuss. What does this look like now that there are people following uh, Jesus uh, who haven't really obeyed the Jewish traditions? So what do they do? They pick, they pick lots of the laws, but they're going to start with circumcision in this discussion. Should the men who want to follow God be circumcised? Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, this is a great opportunity after this to go talk to your parents and ask them some questions about that. But really, it is the mark of being Jewish. And there was fighting and arguing within the church over this. Um, So Paul's causing this disruption. He's being put in jail. And now we continue on in Paul's letter. We're going to read this, right? So we just finished hearing from Andrew on the joy of 
of serving and sacrificing and that we're to stop complaining and arguing and work out our, our salvation. And, uh, and then later in that chapter, Paul is talking about the encouragement that he's going to give the church and he's going to send Timothy to go, to go meet them. So now Philippians 3, let's read this together. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for the dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we worship by the Spirit of God, and we are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on, Christ, on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience of the law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, share in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Isn't this a great uh, piece of the letter? This would be read over and over and over as a church, as in the church, as encouragement. And what I love about the church, about our church, is that we get to do the same. We get to share testimonies. We get to share what God is doing uh, in our lives. And we get to read scripture together. So let's look at this chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 3 a little more. So verse 1, it says, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Rejoice. Remember, as Paul is writing this, he is in, he's in prison. The Philippian believers had almost no say in their course of their lives. They didn't have political power. They didn't have an option to vote. They, they didn't have these government safety nets, no thriving economy, no new jobs, uh, no educational opportunities. They were hand to mouth. But they found uh, strength in the surety of God's provision. Rejoice. Easier, e easier said than done sometimes. But Paul, throughout his letter, uh, has encouraged us to have real joy. It's a word that's been used over and over and over throughout Philippians. So now Paul's going from rejoicing and joy now to conflict. Anyone love conflict? Most of us don't. But Paul's about to make things a little awkward here. He continues in verse 2 to say, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. One of the strongest verses Paul writes directly to people. Imagine, you dog, you evildoer, you mutilator. There's some very strong tension going on within the church right now. What do we do with these Gentiles who want to follow Jesus? Uh, do they have to follow the Jewish laws that were given to the Jews? 
Imagine that you had committed your whole life like Paul to following these laws, not eating certain foods, doing certain things, not doing certain things, and you've done this over and over and over. Now, a lot of these zealous Jewish leaders did have spiritual pride because, as Paul says, he followed these without fault. He had dedicated his life to following the law, their human effort. So Paul continues to give a little more perspective on why he, why he would say such a strong statement. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no human... No confidence in human effort. What an impactful statement. We as Christians still have a mark. Circumcision was the mark of being Jewish. Paul is saying worship will be our mark. Not the law, not human effort. Our fruit, our transformation, our expression of love will be our mark. Paul suggests to the church that no one demand um, one group become like another group. No one can establish their ethnic practice as the standard of holiness. Remember two weeks ago when, when Larry is talking about the Roman people being a, a people of status? You know, you climb the ladder, you focus on position. It meant a lot to them. So Paul continues here stating his credentials. Although I, have con- although I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I'm a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul has spent like 30 years uh, becoming the best Jew. He was zealous following the law. But then remember, Paul was transformed on that road to Damascus. So what is this transformation? What actually happened on this road that someone who spends 30 years focusing on this and then says things like, you know, circumcision is not required. Um, I have this confidence. Um, The next is in this this next verse where he said uh, in verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Paul's like, hey, I did these things. I have the credentials. I followed the law. The law is great. But remember that story I told you about the day that I met Jesus on the road? He talked to me. And and I want to tell you something. The new covenant is here. The promised Messiah that we have talked about and heard about is here. And the best thing about it, the best thing about Jesus, is Jesus is knowable. You can know him. Sure, talk about your rules for holy living. Go ahead and argue about these things but you're missing the point. Do you want to know him? Imagine you have followed all 613 laws. When you sinned, you sacrificed something. And and after Paul is spending half of his life doing this, he's counting it all loss for nothing, worthless. My question is, why? 
Who is this man named Jesus that is making Paul reconsider all of these things? Who is the Holy Spirit who lives within us? See, Paul isn't talking about some get-out-of-jail-free card. He isn't talking about hedging his bets uh, when he dies, uh, that he might go to heaven. Paul is talking about the fullness of knowing Jesus, the fullness of our salvation. At the time Paul's writing this, he might be thinking of of Jeremiah 31, where uh, Jeremiah says, The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with my people of Israel. They will no longer need to teach their neighbors, nor will they teach their relatives. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me. And so Paul continues in, in his letter, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through Christ, through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Let's be clear here. The secret is faith. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to do for Jesus, if you want to gain or suffer for Jesus, it's through faith. Paul's no longer counting on some righteousness based on on rules and obedience of these rules. He is talking about a robust righteousness that only comes through Jesus. Imagine those words. You have spent 30 years working out the righteousness on your own human effort. But what is this righteousness through Jesus? What do you mean that that my faith in Jesus, that my repentance, that, that I'll be clothed in righteousness? What a statement Paul's saying here. And so Paul continues about this incredible opportunity and this incredible joy of knowing Jesus. So so we continue on in the letter where Paul says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, share in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So again here, Paul circling back to knowing Jesus, the central theme. Um, He's telling us that now his life is found in Jesus. Oh, and by the way, this is a glorious life. There's even more. There is power. There is resurrection. Yes, Paul is saying he will also suffer. But wait, there's joy in suffering? See, Paul's not talking about this power being a power from God for safety and for good and easy life. But a power that will include suffering? Why are we going to suffer for Jesus? Well, because people are threatened in our culture by Jesus. They're threatened by forgiveness. People are threatened by grace. They're threatened by love. They're threatened by generosity. I have no idea why. Why in my own life do I uh, become selfish and seek my own pleasure? Why do I get threatened when someone rises up above me? When people like other people more than myself? I don't know why I do this. Why do I get threatened when my kids don't behave? Um, Often it is because I'm selfish. And at the core of of God's power being in generosity, in joy, in peace. And that is part of what this power that Paul is talking about. In my own life, I experience this power through the Holy Spirit, through spiritual gifts, through the fruit of the Spirit. See, when I remain connected in Christ, I am filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. 
when I know him, when I remain in him, I experience joy like no other. And I experience peace that, that I can't even explain where it comes from this morning. See, when I try to do it in my own strength, I turn to ice cream. I think a nice scoop of ice cream will bring me real joy. And can I be honest with you this morning? Um, I don't always feel this joy. Andrew said last week that this joy can be found in serving and sacrificing. And today we're hearing that, that this joy is found in, in the life-giving moments of knowing Jesus. I remember the day that I met Jesus. Think back to the time when you met Jesus. I remember hearing the good news of Jesus and, and wanting him to transform my life. I remember it actually feeling different. My body felt different. There was something in my mind that I was being changed to knowing Jesus. And fast forward many, many years later of, of a life that's been transformed, the continual transformation. I stand before you, a new human, at the same time, a broken human, still full of flaws and, and choose to, choosing to focus on silly things that don't matter. But each day, Jesus is transforming me, bringing the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit into my life. And a few weeks ago with Larry, what does this transformation look like? It looks like taking on the posture of a servant. And, and can I say that there's nothing that brings me more joy than, than helping others? Helping others see the good news of Jesus. The stories of joy in my life are when I help people when I help a neighbor, uh, or when I get to share the good news of Jesus, when, when I get to experience the resurrection power of Jesus. See, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, how do I even go to bed at night uh, when there are people who don't know or don't experience this good news of Jesus? There's often in my own life when I sometimes feel like I'm unable to have the words for the situation. But then that's when the Holy Spirit comes in. And when you're able to share the good news with people, there is power in the words because the Holy Spirit is there. I say things that I don't know and there's clarity. And if you know me, often my words are not clear or there's empathy for people. You see, when there's clarity and empathy for people, this is the Holy Spirit working in me. It's not natural. This is not Andrew's human effort. It is the Holy Spirit working in with me. So how do we know this Jesus who gives us joy? How do we actually know him? Well, if you don't know Jesus and you've never met him, you can actually know a God who can be known and a God that knows you. Or maybe you want to reconnect with him in a way that you want to know God. I encourage you to reach out. Often this first step is, is for you to take. It can be in your home church. It can be with a friend. It can be with a pastor here at the church. We would all love to connect with you, to introduce you to Jesus who actually is knowable. But you might need to take that first step. And what's great about this is it's done in community. Jesus doesn't want you to just go get to know him on your own, but in community with other Christians, also known as the church. So what is my challenge for you this week in, in getting to know uh, the, the infinite value of knowing Christ? Well, my challenge for you is to do the same thing that Paul did and write it down. Write a letter to Jesus. So what would this letter say? 
Well, I want you to describe how, how you would describe the infinite value of knowing Jesus. So maybe for you, this letter will be an introduction letter. Uh, hey, I want to get to know you, Jesus, and you have questions. Maybe this is a letter of frustration, and we see this throughout the Bible, right? Maybe you're, you're frustrated with the church or with culture, all the things that are going on. Maybe you feel like writing a letter of your own hurts and, and hang-ups that are in your life, and that you just want Jesus to provide a miracle in your own life. Maybe it's a reflection on all of your accomplishments and all the things that you have done in your life. And then you get to compare those like Paul did to the infinite value of knowing Christ. But I really want you to challenge yourself and take a few minutes and write that letter. I'm not going to read you my letter that I have wrote to Jesus because that is personal and it's not, it's not to be shared. I don't want you to share your letter. Maybe you'll share it with your spouse but I want you to hold on to the infinite value of knowing Jesus. When trials come, when hard times come your way, or maybe when life is good and full of abundance and things and stuff, hold on to the value of knowing Jesus. Not our circumstances, not our achievements, but Jesus. So thank you, and let's pray together. Thank you for your spirit who makes yourself known to us. And this morning, we just ask that you would make yourself known in a new and fresh way to us. Thank you that you are knowable, that we get to talk to you, we get to hear you, and, and you are uh, somebody who does seek out us. And we see this through the Old Testament of you seeking your people, us rebelling, and you continuing to offer grace and reach out again and say, I want to know you. I want you to know me. So thank you for seeking us out. Thank you for loving us. And Jesus, I do just pray that if people need to know you, you will make yourself known to them. And uh, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we get to worship you and, and bring you praise for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.